Welcome to The Hut Near The Bog, the podcast where a life and business coach and a philosopher discuss various aspects of human existence by drawing on the wisdom of Ireland as well as their own expertise and life experiences. I can't remember people looking in over the counter at us washing the glasses in the sink and they'd be laughing, taking pictures of it. Or our car outside, we used to feed the horses and we never had a tractor or a, a, a jeep and we fed the horses you know, using the, the, the back of the the car, the, the old Toyota Cressida. And all the oats and things that had spilt out over the years and there was like trees growing. <laughs> Tourists used to take pictures of this. Like You'd never get away with the stuff. J.J. Hawke's Singing Pub in Banagher, County Offaly, is a legend amongst Irish pubs. Indeed, it has long held this status due to the creativity and entrepreneurial spirit of its owners, the Hawke family. From artists to actors to musicians and lecturers, the Hawks are truly a talented bunch. This is no less true of the second eldest and current proprietor of the pub, Jura Hawke. Through his creative exploits, Durr has produced various short films which have gone viral on social media and regularly feature on national media in Ireland and abroad. In this episode, Sheila sits down with Durr to discuss a range of topics, including the history of the pub, his use of social media to create an online mythology, the difference between Irish publicans today and of yesteryear, and the challenges he faces in the Covid era. In the final part, George shares his wisdom and recites one of his well-known monologues titled The Fear. Hello, Ger. How are you this morning? It's absolutely wonderful to have you on the Hut Near the Bog podcast. I'm so looking forward to hearing a whole lot about you, Ger, and to understanding the real Ger Hawk. So perhaps you might start by telling me a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me, uh, Sheila and James. I'm delighted to be here. It's my first podcast. So um, basically, I was born in Ballinasloe in Portiuncula Hospital in 1979. So that would make me uh, 40 years of age. Um, I'm one of eight children, a big Irish Catholic family. Um, grow up above the pub. Um, all this, all my siblings are away, different places, scattered across the world. Um, my father was born in Banagher and he, um, he had all sisters and they were all very musical. And that's how the singing pub started because I guess my granddad bought the pub in the 40s. People think it's in our family longer, but it, it's not. He bought it in the 40s. It was a pub before that. It was Bracken's pub. Um, And the written records I have only go back as far as 1800 and it was a pub in 1800. So um, I'm presuming it was a pub before then um, because it's on the River Shannon and, you know, any waterside settlement was always an important we're one of the we would have been only one of the only riverside crossings of the shannon so it would have been an important uh town um economically i guess so my granddad bought the pub and my granddad he was an entrepreneur himself he had the first taxi company around even there's some guys that drink in the pub now tell me stories of how he brought them to dances back years ago and then my father took over that taxi run also. He used to bring people to hospital as well. But um, my granddad would have started, the pub was only a tiny room. And at the time, Ireland was very conservative. You know, ladies wouldn't have gone to bars. Eventually he knocked out another room, which we still refer to as the tap room. And that was almost a separate uh, secluded area with a slidey door that the women would have went to have their drink in and they'd have to tap on a uh, on a little slidey thing to get served 
I don't think they had any interest in sitting with the men anyway. They were all just spitting on the floor. And, you know, people often say, oh, the poor women. But, I mean, I think most of them are delighted to send their husbands out to the pub. I think they actually fund them to get rid of them out of the house so they can have some peace and quiet. Um, but the pub was a kind of a conservative place. There were signs up, no, no music, no cursing. And then, as in Banagher anyway... The River Shannon developed. Brendan Smith, I think, started the boat company down there in the 60s. He saw an opportunity. And then tourists started to appear. So my granddad uh, saw this opportunity. So he, um, we had a piano upstairs in the parlour, which is my bedroom at the moment. And he got, he, he brought down the piano and all his kids that would be all my aunties Teresa, Rena, Evelyn my father Michael, Dilly who's passed away but they were all very musical so he brought down the piano and it was very basic entertainment at the time but um, people seemed to love it They he'd stand outside and when he'd see the tourists coming up he'd get them to start playing music so that was the pub back in the 60s and 70s then when my father met my mother she started to add her own bit of style into the place you know she was very artistic and painted lots of portraits of people in Banagher and she hung them up on the walls darkened the lighting hung red curtains and I remember she had these lovely ashtrays this is when smoking was acceptable in pubs she had these seashell ashtrays so anyway um when I when I took over I guess um um that coincided with the uh the dawn of the Facebook and in Instagram and all those type of sites. So I kind of saw an opportunity there that, you see, one of the great conundrums of life is, do you pursue your passion, which may not pay well, or do you go to towards something more functional? So when I was in school, there was no such thing as career guidance anyway. And it was just, you know, go, go to college, become a teacher, or, you know, unless you're, a doctor or a dentist something exactly like that you go you'd be a teacher or else go to the bank or unless you were farming or something like that that you were going to inherit something so stuff like uh, trivial artistic pursuits were not kind of seen as the way to go so i kind of i never even considered i could have gone into movies or film I, I would have loved to have been an actor or a filmmaker probably more creative writing maybe coming up with concepts but that was just not a, a kind of an option at the time so I ended up taking over the pub I don't know whether that was a, through a sense of duty I, I did enjoy it um, you know, I did. I kept coming back to it. Now, I'm not sure whether that was due to some of my own personal anxieties that maybe I couldn't make my own way through the world, that I needed this crutch, that at least that's always there. There was that. There was also a, a kind of a love for it, a love for the tradition of it. Um, you know, I did miss it any time I was away from it. But then when I'm in it, I kind of dread it at the same time. It's kind of the the duality of man. But anyway, you know, that question of your passion and, and, and stuff, it's like what Oscar Wilde said. He said, when um, artists get together for dinner, they discuss money. When bankers get together for dinner, they discuss art. You know, so it's that whole thing. Is art a valid? And, and later, I see that what I admire about my siblings, Michael Thomas, he went and he pursued acting. My brother Patrick pursued arts. My sister Stephanie, they, they pursued... I always admire people who have the courage to pursue their own passion, whether they know there's going to be a future in it or not. I think that's the thing. You have to take chances in life. So anyway, I, I when I took over the pub, I saw a way of bringing back my passion to my work life in that I said I could... Like, I've, I start these... I have these Christmas ads that kind of go viral every year. Um, you know, one was drone alone about um, this lonely woman whose husband has passed away. She's sitting at home at Christmas and she it's her first year to try and decorate the Christmas tree alone. Now, if you notice, in the, I have a picture of a woman on 
a man's shoulders on the mantelpiece. People don't know. They, they, these are just the little details. I'm kind of like a, a Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, she's trying to decorate the tree. She can't put the star on the top of the tree. She gets a ladder. She's wobbling on the ladder. She's trying to scratch her head. She goes on her phone then and sees the local pub is droning pints to your house. So this is her eureka moment. She orders a pint. So then the we follow this journey of this pint from the pub getting carried by a drone all the way to her house. So she invites the drone in. And so the drone, the first idea was a, about technology and our relationship with it. But anyway, I was going to have a full conversation with them. But for the purposes of a Christmas ad, you have to distill down your into one small message, the two minute film. So she invites the drone in. And the drone comes in, she drinks the pint, but then she was out, she outsmarts, she uses the drone, she points at the, the tree, and the drone flies the star onto the tree. And it's a way of kind of how technology and humans can actually work together going forward in the future, not just this thing. People love this narrative of we're all at loggerheads with technology, but technology is the result of human inventiveness and human ingenuity. So, I started making ads to advertise the pub and create this kind of an online mythology. So that was my own. My granddad started, he bought the place. My father then started with music. My mother added some artisticness. So then I'm adding my own kind of, in, yeah. in a modern way, they, you know, the, every year anyway. So I, this year I'm, I'm I'm struggling to think up of my Christmas ad idea, but I'm not going to give it away on no, air. No, don't. I have don't a few, give it away. I'd I have say. a few few ideas yeah and actually Ger, it strikes me two things i'd like to say first of all listening to you you sound like you have the best of both worlds because you are able to exercise your artistic flair in a different way but nonetheless i believe that that's quite useful and um, a way that maybe a lot of people in ireland might identify with maybe not but i think mm. think that's um, uh, very important and also I believe you have, um, it's almost like the people coming into the pub are giving you some of that sense of creativity. Would that be true to say? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you talk about Ireland and, you know, sometimes I'm cynical about Irish, the Irish way. Like, when when we meet each other on the street and, you know, people are obsessed with waving at each other. I wave, I don't... and. Sometimes the cynical part of me goes, people are just covering themselves. They don't want that person to, they're existing in the imagination of the other person. They don't want that person to think they're being rude by shunning them. So everyone is obsessed with this wave. And sometimes I think, is this this disingenuous bit of Irishness? That, But it's not, uh, because... I was talking about it recently. Small talk is what actually makes us. So, like for example, last night in the pub, I only had two tables. This is the COVID thing. I only had two tables of customers, both uh, tourists from the river. Uh, in the back bar, there was a couple. He was Dub and she was from Finland. So she told me she was from Tampere. And I said, I was there years ago. And... She couldn't believe it when I told her that um, I the, I walked into... There is one Irish bar in Tampere in Finland and there's a picture of JJ Hawks on the wall. That was as much as a surprise to me now as anyone. But And I was asking the barman out there, but he couldn't tell me where the picture came from. Um, but then I brought out a bottle of this drink, Cossin Curva Salmiaki, that I bought out there. I always buy a souvenir bottle of booze. I usually finish them, but anyway... Um, I had a little dribble left, but she was amazed and I had all the, of course, the curse words. That's the words you usually learn. It's kind of a a way of breaking down, breaking ice with people, you know. <laughs> it's always the first thing you learn in a foreign language in practical life, like in the, not in the classroom, obviously, but in practical life, you learn the bad words. And it's a funny way of communicating. But I had been in her hometown and I was able to name a few places. But then the table in the front bar, they were all from Cork. And it turned out that the woman's best friend 
used to work with my grandfather, uh, Derry Walton, the professor who, he died in 1987. But she knew all my my mother and all. It was just, and they, these things are happening all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's because of our willingness to start chatting. On the surface, you might think it's nosy. Oh, where are you from? But it's actually a way of developing relationships. And it's how, and I, I think that's what it means to be Irish. I mean, I have a friend from Banagher, Damien Moran, maybe I shouldn't be naming him, but anyway, he lives in Warsaw, and he lives in this uh, this apartment block, um, eleven stories high, and he's been there maybe fifteen years, and his neighbour they get into the elevator sometimes together. The neighbour wouldn't even look at him, wouldn't even say hello to him, and. There was a point in my life where I used to say to Damien, I admire that. He's not going on with this rubbish small talk that we're so consumed with. But the more I started thinking about it, the more this is how societies function. I mean, small talk, the mm. bit, the, it might seem irrelevant to someone, the bit about the weather, but you don't know how lonely some people are. That's very valid, yeah. to be honest, Ger. Uh, the other thing that strikes me is the level of connectivity you make with people mm. as a result of being in the pub. And obviously people stimulate our imagination. And I think that you're getting the best, as I said, the best of both worlds. One from from actually meeting people that probably prompt you with even some of your videos, right? And secondly, you're you're uh, keeping the tradition of the, the pub there. And I think that's important. And something else that strikes me as well is it seems that there is a common thread running through this. For example, your grandfather, very entrepreneurial, saw the opportunity. Even He started with a one-roomed little pub, but he saw that his children had a particular talent and he saw that the tourists had began to come to Banagher. So as a result, he, he utilised those skills in the most effective way possible and gave people great entertainment and also built a brand, in my opinion. And I always remember, like, that sing-along with uh, Teresa was just always amazing and nobody wanted to go home. Mm. And not alone that, but all the the non-nationals, we'll call them, all the tourists, they felt as connected to their Irishness or indeed, even if they weren't Irish, they felt that sense of connectivity. So I think that that was amazing. So then, you know, your dad continued that tradition, but your mum brought in another uh, artistic part to it. And all those photographs, not photographs, sorry, paintings of faces um, that were real um were customers in the pub and I think that that adds such a sense of authenticity to the pub right and here are you now taking over Ger and you're using the most modern form as in technology and you're using that to get yourselves out there but also um, to connect with people so it's all about connectivity so I can see that creativity and that sense of entrepreneurship that's there generations it doesn't as they say the apple doesn't fall far too fall uh, too far from the tree, and I think that's very, very, very apt in your case. Also, I love the sense of it's almost like you could have done anything you wanted to. That there was you didn't go for the ordinary mundane jobs. All of the family have gone and followed their dream to a great extent, and I just suspect deep down that you're following yours too, Jer. Would I be wrong in saying that? Yeah, maybe you're right. Um, um, you know, like for the pub, I was thinking about it there last night and it's not a kind of a homage to Irish pubology, like a museum piece. It's an actual... You know, there's so many imitations nowadays. Like I was working in Dublin up until recently and I remember a pub sprang up at the bottom of Grafton Street and... Mary's bar and they made it into like this old grocery but it was everything about it was artificial of course you know this old world representation of Irish pubology but not an actual genuine almost like the hipster movement dictated by the hipster movement yeah and that's the great thing about yours it's so authentic and to be honest I think there's layers of history there and maybe you might have some metaphor or something that might bring that to mind yeah well it's 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 
I mean, one day I was trying to clean the pub and I was sick of looking at this old carpet in the front bar. So I started to rip it up. And uh, when I ripped that one up, there was another one underneath it. And then there was another one underneath. That's why I said, I may as well just leave these there. And it was like, um, you know, a metaphoric layering of the generations. In part, laziness maybe to just leave it there. uh, But also an important metaphor that, Mm. you know, things get added to in time. You know, well, that's true. But even I'd see it as something else, even the fact they might have left the carpet there because there was the footprints of so many people and so many customers there as well. And they didn't want to remove them. Mm. And I think there was a level even of superstition in Ireland, you know, mm. that that you don't disturb. Yeah, you know, exactly. And, and in many ways, I think, again, that's another thing that adds to your pub is there was so little disturbed. Uh, it as you say, it's the real authentic article. Yeah, it was it was never renovated. I mean, it started as a room, and while you know, back before in the Victorian era, there was ornate pubs being decorated in places like Dublin, and you'd see them around the country. But ours just stayed as a like a, a little room. Then some of the pubs went into renovation in the seventies and eighties, and they looked a bit tacky. But that's come back again. They look kind of cool now as well. So ours was just basically stone walls and what whatever was there you know paintings and things uh, just hung yeah, up no, you no, know. that's brilliant and Jerm, maybe we'll move on now maybe to talk about your sense of irishness and where do you think your influences came from there hmm well see i i always had i never had a kind of a sense of irishness Growing up, as I said, I was influenced by kind of exotic stories of witch doctors and things in Africa. And maybe because I grew up in the pub, I remember like meeting American tourists who had a Polaroid camera and they took a picture of myself and my brother and they were shaking. I remember being fascinated with this. And growing up watching, we always had movies. My father loved, he had this big screen and he loved videos so we had the first video recorder i think around and we used to get these pirate videos delivered and i remember watching superman one and just being obsessed with new york and the skyscrapers and i remember years later going to the empire state building and i don't know it was built in the 20s i think and if you think of ireland in the 20s so you've this whole metropolis city developed somewhere else and in ireland we didn't have like some houses didn't have running water or electricity up until you know the 60s so i was kind of obsessed with this getting away we used to spend our summers on the coast of west cork i used to love staring out at the sea and just i i remember going to go to or, or to salt hill my father would bring us down to salt hill in the car and i remember waiting for that first glimpse of the sea on the horizon and it was I haven't kind of never replicated that feeling of just looking at the sea. It was like it was a gateway to the other world, another world. So when I was in school, I used to love history. And that was, I, I ended up studying that in university. But I never was that attracted to Irish history for some reason. I preferred reading about ancient Greece or um, Christopher Columbus or, the age of discovery i just found it a lot more exotic okay. and I, I i think that was i was i'm a kind of a malcontented character anyway i'm never happy where i am i'm always looking to uh, somewhere else when i go on holidays i'm in a town i look at the signpost i want to go there i, I want to get on a, a bike i love cycling you know and going off on my own and jog i could jog for 20k off into the wilderness i just love kind of escape and and that idea that i'm not tied to a place okay that's interesting and i'm wondering did that come from the stories your mum told you as a child yeah i mean it comes from because my sense of irishness is not the place i mean I think if you look at Irish people abroad, they have a stronger sense of Irishness almost. It's like when you're away, you mythologize your home. I often say to all the guys, you know, that I know that are living abroad, 
they're always talking about the pint of Guinness and the crack. And I say, oh, look, lads, if you love it that much, move home. Move home to Banagher and see what it's like on a November. And that, I, I see that every Christmas. Okay. People come home and the atmosphere is brilliant. They're all coming back in their fancy duffel coats and their <laughs> scarves and their, oh, how's it going? And, oh, yeah, and brilliant. And then um, it's great. And I'm there, oh, look, you know, you're... If you're here all the time, it's a different kettle of fish. And then January hits and they're all heading off and I get really, really depressed. For me, Mm. no, January is bad, but at least I know spring is coming. For me, September, October, November, the three worst months of the year for me. I love December. Um, It's an excuse to drink pints earlier in the day than would normally be acceptable because it's darker and you can get away under the the festive season. But... um, why do you think September, October, November are the low months? For I you, love, you see, I love spring. I love seeing the swallows. I, I, I just love that hope. And I just feel like at the end, I feel like it's a Sunday for me. You know that feeling on yes. Sunday, Glen Rose on, your homework isn't done, <laughs> Sunday night. I feel like September, October, I know my birthday is in October, but I, I was never big into my birthday. But I love Christmas. I love December and that. So, Ger, do you see the people uh, that are abroad that are obviously from Banagher and surrounds, do they kind of think of Ireland as faraway hills or green? Yeah, I th- there is that sense of, of that. I remember when I was, uh, I worked in San Francisco for a while and I remember seeing these two shaved head Dublin guys, young, younger than me. They were probably only 19 or 20. And they had, in this Irish bar, they had... F- they had a jukebox and they had the town I love so well playing. That's that Phil Coulter, I think, wrote it. In my memories, I will always see. And they were crying, the two of them. Now, I know they were pissed, but <laughs> they were crying, thinking of Ireland and home and trad music. And I just thought to myself, at the time, you know, the early 2000s, I think it was 2002, Young people didn't weren't that into trad. I remember at that time we were getting a lot more older clientele than younger, and it was kind of uncool. So I remember thinking, if those two guys were at home, there's no way they'd be listening to the town I love so well crying. It was only because they were away mm. that they, you know, to be denied something is yeah. to, then to. It's like the pint of Guinness during the, this recent mm. lockdown. People started to fantasize about pints of Guinness mm. that they couldn't get it. Mm. And Guinness was everywhere then. And people were, oh, I'd love a pint of Guinness, whatever. People that never even drank Guinness in their lives were talking about having this pint of Guinness. <laughs> Just, I, I, I suppose it's a symbol of Irishness. Yeah, and uh, Now, even though if you delve into the history of Arthur Guinness and all, he was, you know, his Irishness, his, he wasn't Irish at all, but it's become a symbol of Irishness. Mm. And I think the guys in Diageo are, are marketing geniuses. You know, anyone who comes to Ireland now, there's a pint of Guinness shoved in their hand. That's right. Uh, yeah, Obama and all. Yeah, it's interesting, though, when you talk about those two young men, two young lads in San Francisco, mm. it's almost like the, the music evokes something in us, mm. does it? Oh, yeah. It, music is definitely um, our you know irish writers and i i i just think irish yeah our the way we communicate with each other is not irish people i feel are are kind of indirect like i used to work with international students for a long time and i would meet them at the airport when they'd come in they'd be only in their early teens spanish german whatever an eclectic mix from different backgrounds and I'd meet them in Terminal 1 and I'd put them all together in a group and they'd immediately start shaking hands talking telling them each other about themselves really confident you see a group of Irish teens I don't think they're as gregarious initially now when you get to know them there I think Irish people are a very shy indirect race of people if if it's race you call it Um, I think that's where our our booze culture comes in. We like to have our drink and then we can let our hair mm-hmm. down. You go abroad to different countries. They're dancing. They don't need any drink. They're really kind of way salsa. Yeah. But, but do, do you think some of our reservation when we meet people is part of our history, though? Is it an impact from that, I wonder? It could be, but I'm of the belief that we should. you should never let anything 
holds you back. I mean, I never experience any kind of oppression from Brit. I know it's in our history, but nobody alive today um, has lived under British rule, have they? In in the South, mm. so I, I I think it's it's an easy excuse to kind of to kind of excuse yourself from a success blame it on this that and the other i don't know i just think irish people are kind of reserved but genuine i'm very empathetic people i mean i have this i don't know maybe it's an imagined thing i could see someone on the street and they don't they don't have to look destitute they could look like a successful person but i get this empathy all of a sudden Mm. i don't know is it this sixth sense Mm. and you i was always very sensitive Mm. of of things though hypersensitive almost like i'd absorb i'd absorb symptoms of stuff if Mm. i read it like uh, i remember reading about uh in the sunday independent the true story behind the exorcist whether Mm -hmm. it was true or not i don't know i was only probably 12 or something and the little kid started to hear an itch in the attic this is how the demonic possession occurred and i remember hearing an itch in the attic and thinking obviously it was mice but i thought there's this this is the devil now coming to possess me i'm done for so i got a tape recorder and i could not sleep unless i had a tape recorder play the radio then i became obsessed with tapes and i had to of of music and 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 songs and I had to have a tape, a blank tape ready to record. And I end up with thousands and thousands of mixtapes because I was afraid I'd hear a song and if I never heard it again, it would haunt me for the rest of my life. Right. So I, that's, I was bullying I never invented that Shazam app that you can <laughs> play, put it onto the radio. I had thousands of tapes, you know, it, and it was just that kind of hypersensitivity to... Yeah. I remember reading something else then and I adopted them symptoms. I went through a phase where I read this agony aunt of this girl who couldn't speak in public without blushing. Now, I was always very confident in school. I remember I would look away in English and I'd trace the, the, my finger along the line because I was mad to read. I, I wanted to read. And the teacher would pick someone else and they'd be kind of slower and they'd be going, Anne, Anne, Barry had a lorry and I'd be please ask me to read please so I'd look away on purpose but I'd know where they were so the teacher try and catch me out and then I'd head straight in and they almost didn't like that arrogance <laughs> but anyway I you know I never had any problem I remember being in university and I was always picked as the spokesperson for uh, to pre- I'd say look I won't do the work on the project but I have no problem presenting it so I had no problem speaking in public and presenting and I then read an agony aunt where this girl blushed every time she had to speak in public and I thought oh imagine if that happened to me and then because I started to it started to happen to me so then I I kind of withdrew an awful lot and I think that could be one of the reasons why I'm in the pub today is that I almost feared that triggering off somewhere else in the in the world of careers in the, if I became a stockbroker or something or if I became a TV presenter. What if this would happen to me? I better stay in the, just stay in the familiar. Maybe that's part of the, you know, it took a long time to kind of overcome that. I wrote a monologue about it called Sailing to Buy Valium, more clickbait than WB8. I never went on Valium or anything. Brilliant. And we might hear one of those monologues. Just, I'm going to, I believe your sensitivity is your creativity Mm. and there's no doubt about that. And sometimes we think you can be oversensitive, but can you wonder? I doubt it. No, I I think it's a good quality to be aware and to never become too arrogant and smug among people no matter what you achieve um i i feel like it's an important quality that it would keep you grounded and always hyper aware of others around you mm-hmm. and their needs mm-hmm. now i know they say i, I don't know is it where people have in modern world maybe getting a bit selfish but it's important to look after those around you i mean what is the world only the people around you and Brilliant. The, the community, the the effect, the the 
connections you make, you know. That's so that's what I was going to say about Ira. I don't know where I went on this tangent, but about Irishness and how reserved we are. Instead of communicating maybe face to face, we're better through our songs and our stories and our poetry. Mm. And I'm not sure I didn't study philosophy. I is there an Irish philosophy or not? But it's definitely lived in the works of art and poetry and song and stories that we tell each other. You know? I think that's brilliant, yeah. And I'd never thought of it that way before, Ger. So thanks for that, Ger. So what are the positive aspects to modern Ireland? Well, I suppose the positive aspects to modern Ireland are... Um, well, I mean, we have we have a, a wide variety of um, products that we wouldn't have had. Uh, you know, my my father tells me there was no bananas or anything like that growing up now we have all these all these different products and you know different foods from all over the world i i love spicy food i i love the hotter the better thai food and mexican i'm not one for the the irish sunday roast um if i if if reincarnation is is a thing i was probably i definitely lived out somewhere where they like spicy food i don't mexico or thailand or somewhere but in ireland today i mean yeah it's the diversity is great i mean when i went to when i went to dublin first in 98 um there was very little international people around at the time and the um the 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 country guy was almost seen like a, a foreigner uh, my accent i remember trying to chat women up in nightclubs and they'd be there oh my god where are you from um, where is that accent from you know it was like probably someone who had been in a, a posh school in dublin all their lives would have never even seen a cow let alone a, a, a biffo from offaly mm-hmm. and i don't know offaly didn't have that kind of coolness that like there was lads that were never afraid to exclaim i'm a Kerry man or i'm a corkonian or you know awfully never had that kind of coolness it was kind of just although we were all ireland champions at the time mm. in 98 when i went to college but anyway um yeah you modern... were only finding your wings jared that was the thing yeah. i think yeah yeah true but it's still not a cool thing but that's what i'm trying to do i'm awfully is so uncool i'm gonna try and make it cool to appeal to the no better man i think you're the (laughs) real man to do that you're a great ambassador for awfully to be honest um if only someone would pay me now and uh, if there's any jobs going as ambassador i often thought that in my own head fantasizing about walking around when i worked in dublin there'd be people from all over the world there and i often thought if someone would pay me to walk around and just chatting the people and giving them local knowledge. And if if someone gave me a hundred K I'd do that. No problem. You know, that's what I loved about the pub is you'd be meeting people from all over the world, different parts of the world, different feckin' celebrities over the years and all. And, and, and just chatting the diff the variety. That's how, you know, you learn about the world and mm. different people. And Ireland today, I suppose is, is a host to so many different cultures and nationalities and exposure to different ideas now and no more than any other country though i don't think that's unique to a modern day ireland i think that's just a modern day world in that people are all over but irish like the no matter where you go in the world you'll meet someone from ireland that's true you know the diaspora as you say is is far and wide no matter what place you go you'll meet i was in Bangkok once standing up and I was reciting um what's that the it was in the year of 39 and the sky was full of lead Hitler was heading for Poland and Pally, Paddy for Hollyhead and I was shouting this out on a on a stool you know the way we say you're not really Irish until you go abroad and you really wear it like a, a badge but I, actually the first time I went abroad that's a, an interesting one the local lads used to say Wherever you go, Jar, they loved Irish. They love Irish people. I used to think, ah, rubbish, you know, we're only a dot. And I remember going to Paris, and one of the lads said, whatever you do, get yourself something to show you're Irish. So I remember buying this little brooch, an Irish flag in Dublin airport, and going out, anyway, and walked into a pub on the on Rue Mouffetard, 
some little bar and uh, there was this lad behind the bar and two women sitting at the counter and I came up and the closer I got I could hear the accents oh right there how's it going and Dublin Dublin people and uh, now I love Dublin people I used to meet them on the river I think the the dubs are some of the best people for the crack and you know but anyway I walked in and I asked for a beer and your man spotted the brooch and he, where are you from Ireland oh, you're walking eager what are you doing wearing that and the two women started <laughs> laughing so I sculled off the bottle of beer I went outside and I ripped off the brooch and I threw it into the seine and I said never again will I and I remember then working in San Francisco and meeting these Irish cute cute whores you know and they'd be nearly the worst lads to be you're another Irish lad over you know as if you were coming to take their to you would reveal to the people that they were fooling that what they were really like you could see through them you know what what their background or who they really were not this they had created a new identity for themselves abroad but it's like we knew the other Irish meeting other people could see through that uh, veneer that this act that they were putting on someone discover their true mediocrity or something i know that's a very cynical view jer you're a modern irish publican right is there a difference uh, being a publican today and being a publican in yesteryear oh for sure even in my own lifetime like when i grew up in the pub i mean we'd all be collecting glasses and running around the pub. You'd never see that now. Standards, I suppose, have elevated so much. Like, we never... We didn't even have an ice maker or a glass washer up until the 2000s. We used to fill bags of ice. Bags and bags of ice. Put it in. My auntie had this shop up the town and we'd freeze the ice. And one of the big jobs was popping the ice. And your thumbs would be gone numb. Like, people were lucky to get a glass, a clean glass, let alone ice with their drink, and then slices of lemon, things like that. And now what you have to offer, I mean, it's so, it's advanced so much since then, standards and cleanliness and things, you know. Have we lost something in that though, Ger? We might have. We might have lost a bit of authenticity, but I don't know. I don't think it's any harm to be able to offer more things. A choice is good in life at the end of the day. And I don't know. Like I remember people looking in over the counter at us washing the glasses in the sink and they'd be laughing, taking pictures of it. Or our car outside, we used to feed the horses and we never had a tractor or a, a, a jeep and we fed the horses you know, using the, the, the back of the the car, the, the old Toyota Cressida. And all the oats and things that have spilt out over the years and there was like trees growing tourists used to take pictures of this like you'd never get away with the stuff like like publican year in yesteryear i told like everything has changed you know and i often ask people about you know what's a good pint of guinness what is your reference point to a good pint of guinness because it's changed so much the recipe has changed the delivery system there used to be no cooler it was like a a feckin there was no gas now it's all, you know, there's gas, there's, it's chilled. The modern taste maybe is not as appreciative. Like modern marketing methods mean serve a drink ice cold, freeze the taste buds, they'll drink it quicker. Therefore, maybe flavour is lost. Maybe they've not invested so much in flavours. I think the modern palate might be a bit too, um, maybe they, they don't like as... Now, that's changed again in recent times with the dawn of the craft beer and the more hoppy stuff and people are getting into whiskey tasting. But I don't, there's lots of things. I remember the German tourists coming in and looking at the Irish owl fellas drinking their whiskies and their pints. And the Irish owl fellas would put red lemonade in their whiskey. And this, much to the disgust of the Germans. Oh my God, what are you doing? You ruined this good drink with the red lemonade. It's disgusting. Because they... Some of these Germans knew more about Irishness than the Irish people. Like mm. they'd they'd correct someone singing a rebel song. It is you are singing the wrong melody. Mm. I remember one big German guy, and he's there the superiority. Then in Ireland, he's talking about the roads in Ireland. In Ireland, you go through. No, sorry, 
In Ireland, you go over the mountain. In Germany, we go through the mountain. Mm. Talking about the windy roads. Okay. But, um, years ago, I mean, years ago, lads came to the pub to get away from people as an almost refuge. Now you talk to any modern day guy who wants to help you design the pub, he'd say, knock the back wall and let light in. But this... I, I never wanted light. I, I always felt like a vampire if I was day drinking and then the sunlight would hit you. It was a horrible feeling. So the last thing I want is light coming in at the back. I mean, I, I like the the incognito drinking in the dark and, you know, that type of thing. But years ago, I mean, people went for an, a bit of anonymity as well. And I remember my father telling me there was a telephone at the bar and if the phone rang all the people that would be sitting at the bar would say if it's for me I'm not here <laughs> I'm not here now they're getting their phones and they're checking in and advertising the fact of where they are so it's a kind of a difference in 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 outlook but years ago it was rougher as well I remember lads would be coming in and there'd be fights the whole time lads would be breaking up tables and I was like I was in loads of fights I remember a guy kicking the counter and the barmaid was scared so I said come on outside and I opened the front two doors then he hit me a box and I ended up wrestling him I didn't know how to fight at the time I was probably 16 or 17 so that's when I said I better start learning some self-defense I think that's an essential skill that we should all learn some kind of self-defense for confidence even I know we say we're advanced and we're intelligent and we're this that and the other but at the end of the day size or ability mm. people respect someone who can look after themselves i mean i was watching this uh documentary in england about intimidation or something anyway they sent this small little guy into a bar and he took someone's pint and the lads reared up who he took the pint off and they were going to bait him then uh, an hour later they sent in this giant guy he was six foot eight and he takes the pint and the two guys look at him, the same two, and they turn their palms upward as if to say, what's going on? Then they pause it and they have this psychologist and he's there going, observe the palms turned upward. And then they cut to chimps in the wild. And this is a submissive gesture where they put up their palms. So I don't know, that kind of, that kind of under, that aggression thing is still there. And it's one of my biggest worries. I mean, when you're in the pub, you're on your own. You've no bouncer to help you. You're responsible to break up. And there's like... You know, you run it as best you can, but with alcohol and that, and you don't know what else guys are taking nowadays, there's always going to be a little bit of argy-bargy. Not not nearly as much as there used to be, I don't think, but there's always that... It's an incendiary type of... You know, you have a lot of people in, and there could be a row. That's one of my biggest worries, the okay. the, the, the row breaking out. But I, I, it's it's... It's not as bad as it used to be. Well, that's good to know. And Ger, in terms of the toll it takes on you and on family life, is that harder today than it would be, say, in your dad's time? I think different roles at the time were expected. I mean, not that it's wrong. It was of its time. I, my mother tells me about being dropped off to the steps of the hospital, you know, to have all of us. And my father would head off or... Christmas he'd only get to go down we we used to spend it in Cork he'd only come down on Christmas day he'd have to do the bar I mean it's seven days a week 364 days a year for us we don't open on Good Friday so only, the only day off you get is Christmas day so it is it really really tough it's a really tough lifestyle weeknights you could be open all day people only see the busy nights you know mm -hmm. social media that's all you're ever going to put up anyway mm -hmm. you're never going to document the, mm -hmm. the 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 night where you're sitting with two guys and they have four pints each at the most three pints and you have 20 quid in the tail at the end of the night you know it's so time consuming you have to be switched on all the time you have to be in good form all the time um i like a recent incident then we were talking about the standards have changed you know i had a few customers james you were there um they were complaining about certain stuff and i came out and i you know asked them i, I was being civil but then they started giggling and i have a really short fuse i said who's fucking giggling you're sneering me and then how dare you talk to us like this you cannot talk to us. i'll talk whatever way i like and uh the whole situation. I'm. I don't diffuse situations. I'm the world's worst for that. Um. I kind of incite stuff. If 
but it was, I grew up with that with my father as well. Like the pint of Guinness, defend your product, you know, whatever. Um, so I remember him, a, a guy complaining to my father years ago, that pint tastes rotten. And my father used to go, oh, is it? Give me a taste there. So he'd take it, he'd scull the whole pint, hand him back an empty glass and go, it tasted fine to me. <laughs> if you don't like it, hook off out here. <laughs> Very go somewhere good. else. The wheelbarrow went flying. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, one of them seemingly then I, I, I found out had a wheelbarrow. So this crowd that were in that night complaining and, I heard then one of them was wheeling around a wheelbarrow around the beer garden. And when I heard that, as I, I, my wife said to me, you go inside, I'll deal with this. Because she could see I was going to hop someone off the floor. So she um, she told me to go away. But then I saw the wheelbarrow and I just Rah! got the wheelbarrow, <laughs> fired it into the air. Okay, Ger, so you, you, you say we're learning from COVID. Do you feel you had to be a lot more creative with the COVID lockdown? Oh, yeah. I mean. So what did you do? So initially when the thing broke, I was looking at the, I, I knew it was coming I, and I was talking to people who live abroad and there was worrying signs. So I decided to close before the the lockdown. I actually did an interview on BBC and Victoria Derbyshire about closing down. And I said, it's, it's the, the, the lockdown is a good opportunity for people to do things like I don't know, get creative clean their floor I said we haven't swept the floor in the pub in 30 years this is a good opportunity but uh so after uh, I I welcomed it because I I had been working I didn't have a day off in I don't know how long working day and night worrying all the time you've bills to pay the pub industry in Ireland has already been in massive decline I mean there used to be 11 bars in Banagher there's only five or four now and that doesn't mean if one closes, it's going to be busier. It just means less people are going to come to the area. Like when the Shannon Hotel was going, the Vine House, all these places, the town was booming. It was brilliant. The less places, the less choice, the less people are inclined to come to the area. But anyway, after maybe April, I said, look, I'm going to have to do something because I, I'm, I'm either... the I'll never go back to the pub or I'll just have to drive forward. So I started, I got a guy to build me a Perspex thing. I called it a go window, started bottling cocktails, doing takeaway pints. That went really well. People started queuing up and it was great. Then I started getting phone calls from the county council saying I'm in breach of uh, creating queues on the street. And there was people, the guards are great, but they have to act on complaints. And there's someone keeps complaining about me you know oh, he's promoting drinking on the street and so i wrote to the county council for these bylaws and they wrote back to me saying they can't give me the bylaws i wrote them under the freedom of information act it, the article does not exist so i don't know is there any bylaws pertaining to the consumption of alcohol in public places in banner but anyway that's the negative side the positive side it was great to see people again photographs started getting uploaded of people bringing pints of guinness to their grandfather the smiles on their faces it was just brilliant it kind of brought a bit of normality back into people's lives that we were so scared at the start of this whole thing that um you know it brought so oh, we can actually get a drink again and kind of like everyone exhaled um and then you know i was doing takeaway pizzas and I was having, I, I was actually really enjoying that because I didn't have to, you weren't stuck with the person for hours on end. You just <laughs> serve it out and they're gone. And yeah. I found it a lot easier. Then I decided to open as a restaurant on the 29th of July, uh, June, sorry. And I remember I wrote an article for the Midland Tribune that night. On, I found it so difficult that day, just keeping people back from the bar. People, it was hard for them too. And I wrote an article about putting up an electric fence to stop them. And about two weeks later, I seen some guy in England did an electric fence. But I'm sure he saw the article and stole my idea and he went viral and I didn't. <laughs> but anyway, it's just, um, it's been really tough. Um, but it's good to keep moving. You have to keep moving forward. You have to turn negatives into positives. Mm. Or else just, you may as well pack it in, you know. I know there are some people moaning and they're looking at the government to do this and that for them but there are ways around this if you really put your mind to it there are ways so yeah definitely know. like that quotation the best way to predict the future is to invent it and mm. in many ways you had to invent your future or you could have been left high and dry oh yeah well literally. we had to reinvent the whole way we do business that we couldn't offer the music anymore 
So I invested in a big marquee um, so I could in, ensure social distancing. Now it's it's really far away from the bar. So it's a big trek and table service, keeping track of tabs, retraining staff, retraining myself. I just and, and then everyone is paying separately. And it's a nightmare. It really is tough. You know, I found oh, it yeah. really tough. But look, it's not as tough as some the realities in life like uh, there are other things that are tough in life this isn't really tough it's just tough in the sense of what way it was before yeah you know yeah okay Ger uh, I'm just wondering uh, how important social media has been to you during the pandemic yeah I mean it's it's such a valuable resource I know social media can get carried away with it and there's an awful lot of insidious stuff on it and it can waste your life you can waste your life scrolling. I wouldn't have a social media account if I didn't have a pub, to be honest. But I find it is a really valuable tool to advertise your business. Everyone is like, everyone hangs out on social media now. So that is a an invaluable tool, uh, an invaluable way of advertising. Um, You know, you a, a video, like different things like at the start of the lockdown i saw the video of the italian singing on their balcony so i said to luke who was my resident banjo player luke o'connor i said let's get up on the roof or the the balcony and the the window ledges of the and i don't like heights so i was clinging on but anyway i played the bower on he played the banjo and we put it up and that went that was shown on on one of the american channels on a clip fox or cnn or one of these fucking channels um you know so it 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 allows you to once previous you relied on word of mouth and maybe a few newspaper articles but now uh, a publican or any business for that matter can reach the furthest corner of the earth um with with social media now it depends on the content i mean if you're generic and you're putting up pictures of the same stuff everyone else is doing you're not going to stand out but that's like in all angles of life you need to come up with your own mm-hmm. be an individual with your own flavor but use that and 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 put that through like i did one then the the berlin bar in dublin got bad press for uh, some brunch so i said let's do a video to myself and i wanted to get a few calves in and i was going to the, in the original video the guy's pouring shots down people's mouths so i wanted to do a piss take of that but with a few calves and a milk bottle mm-hmm. that the camera i'd be up on the counter dancing looked like real cool then the camera would pan down i was just but we couldn't get the calves into the pub they ran off down the road so i had to settle for a horse instead and uh, we had a horse but the first thing the horse did was have a shit on the floor luckily it's just a concrete floor but uh we got the horse in and um you know i had this this uh caption in my mind for the article um party animals or it was a, a kind of an orwellian thing cuz it was like they were do we were locked down in offley at the time but in dublin they were free and it was like an animal farm type scenario but uh that type of stuff you have to be able to see the absurdity of mm. of life and i think irish people are good at that just finding the finding a weird angle and and putting your your own unique twist on it and having a laugh i mean there's you turn on the news now and it will really i don't know how anyone listens to joe duffy or any of these all negative 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 stuff everyone is moaning every dispossessed i'm moaning about this that and the other just get on with it get on with life and try and do something you know, yeah, I don't think it's any bother to you, uh, Ger, to dare to be different. I think you enjoy being different and you obviously have the imagination and the creativity to spot an opportunity to promote your pub in a different way. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's what the, it's all about. The problem about. now is you can't really capitalise on any kind of advertising. You might have your name out there, but I, because I'm a physical pub I rely on punters coming in the door we're limited now people can't travel so you know it, it might be it'll go down as posterity or whatever well but it, you may capitalise on it in the future you yeah. don't know I mean at least you're putting yourself out there and look maybe we get to the question about the little bit of wisdom 
uh, as in what are the little bits of wisdom you may have picked up Irish or otherwise? I think just my own my own advice to anyone would be not that I have any worth peddling but I think just try and keep a positive attitude no matter what's going on around you try and turn use the obstacles like there's always going to be another mountain to climb you get over one it's not like a movie where the baddies are killed at the end and the goodies win life isn't like that the next morning it's like the pub you could have the best night ever it's packed everything goes well you have to get up the next morning clean the pub and go all over again it doesn't matter what has you're only as good as the day you're living not back then not some burden you're carrying or anything like that you're only as good as the day you're alive so you have to just you know there's always going to be an obstacle and I think the only way we learn is through I think that's the meaning of life is the suffering um you can't enjoy you can't have sweet without sour Mm. it's like Hopkins poetry where is it Hopkins where He's talking about the fireplace and the ashes need to be struck to ignite them again. It's like you need to you need to be struck to to learn to what was it? I was looking at Batman Begins the other night and Bruce Wayne falls down the the owl the well and his father goes, Why do we fall down, Bruce? <laughs> it's so we can get back up again. Yeah. That type of thing, Brilliant. you know. Yeah. No, you, it sounds like it's about seizing the moment with you. Mm. Is, would that be true? Yeah. As yeah. as, as uh, they said in, in Dead Poets Society, Carpe Diem, we don't always, I don't always seize any moment. I, I feel like I've, I, I, I look back on moments I should have seized, didn't. and But look, there's no point in dwelling mm. on that. Just keep, yeah. Keep on trucking. Yeah, know? well, Gerard, to be honest, it has been a really, really interesting conversation. You've your wealth of knowledge and wisdom and everything that goes with it. And I I know you're a man of many talents and listening to you, talent seems to have been the dilemma of options for you. And apart from being a publican, I know you do many other things. And one of the things I really enjoy listening to is your monologues. And perhaps you might... Uh, recite one of them for us now yeah I suppose you know you talk about a philosophy and we were talking about you know being a publican and alcohol and all and probably being too fond of the booze myself at times um I wrote this monologue a few years ago and it's it's called the fear and that word kind of became a kind of a cultural thing in Irish people where they drink too much and they'd wake up with the fear of what they said or what they did so I often got the fear, you know, being a student and being up around Dublin and drinking too much with lads and waking up on a Sunday in the sweat. So I'll just try and give it a lash. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. So this is called The Fear. Emerging from an all-too-frequent alcohol-induced comatic trance, inflicted with the sensation that the skull is clasped in a vice, the burgeoning beer-belly incendiary with a cocktail of beer and spirits bubbles with corrosive bile. Rationality becomes stunted, and fear permeates every pore, indicative of the previous night's debauchery. The atmosphere in the room is toxic and the air is infused with the omnipotent fetter of booze. The normally welcome sunlight becomes an irritating repellent and the presence of a pint glass, usually reserved for drinking from, has become a urine receptacle. Garments festoon the bedroom and Calvin Klein underpants have become a colostomy bag. The first signs of life come in an uncoordinated stagger toward the bathroom to kneel at the altar of Armitage Shanks and exorcise the demons of excess. This ritual, while releasing some of the tangible remnants of the session, fails to alleviate a much darker, sinister force, the fear, for the psychological trauma far outweighs the physical. The Dionysian nature of the multiple-day binge is the cause of this state. Alcohol is consumed recklessly, guzzled and gulped with Piscean-like ability, inspired by a pseudo-tradition of banter and revelry, and consoled by tales of a drunken, irreverent past. Accolades are awarded to those who can consume without swaying, erring, or slurring. 
All of this is performed with minimal sustenance, the staple being bacon fries or dry roasted peanuts. The sad reality behind this is that alcohol has become a crutch to buttress the gargler socially and equip them with false confidence and the ability to jettison all semblance of self-consciousness, just like armour safeguarding against the sharpened lance of truth. The by-products of this seemingly gregarious enabling elixir are far from coherent conversations. As moronic inanities and verbal puzzles are produced, Base emotions and animal instincts begin to dictate behaviour as the mind becomes marinated further. A feral-like demeanour is assumed. Attempts to communicate with members of the opposite sex usually result in rejection, and the ratio of pints drank to conversation held is dismal. Yields are negligent as the drunken wretch must stumble homeward with thoughts of reality and duty temporarily suspended. The severe thud and crashed reality is cataclysmic. Thoughts become refocused and refracted when viewed through the skewed prism of the hungover mind. Positive ideas are constipated in the bowels of the brain. Trivial dilemmas are exacerbated and magnified, and the simplest of tasks become Herculean. The sluice gates open and the subject drowns in a wave of anguish and self-loathing. An imaginary showreel of life is conjured. The celluloid catastrophe that unfolds is a tale of unfulfilled potential and wasted opportunities. Staring into the dark void of the future, failure is prophesied at every turn. Smooth shapes become sharp objects with the ability to pierce eyeballs and puncture the most buoyant souls. Sweat begins to flow as an intense heat is produced, bizarrely while wallowing amidst a boreal chill. The head morphs into a throbbing bulbous state, and skin becomes invaded with blotches and capillaries akin to Nile tributaries. The ringing mobile phone resounds and resembles a harpy's shrill. The thoughts of any form of human interaction provoke anxiety, apprehension and overproduction of gastric acid. The mental flagellation knows no bounds and nebulous darkness descends. There is no refuge in the shadows and any attempts to bind the shards of this fragmented soul are futile. For this is the fear. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Ger, it's all I can say. It was such a pleasure. Um, you're so talented and I hope you continue to be yourself because you have so much to offer the world. Well, thanks for having me. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. So, Hi, folks. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a minute, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, tell your friends about The Hut Near the Bog. See you next time. <laughs>